Hi, I'm Ellen Dutton. My husband David and I joined Walnut Creek Prez in November 2020. We have two daughters, Emily and Elizabeth, who live in North Carolina. Currently this year at Walnut Creek Prez, I am serving as a deacon, and it is a sincere pleasure to help and care for our church community. In 2023, I will be transitioning to a new role as a deacon moderator. In relation to our current series of new beginnings, Pastor Bart asked me to speak a bit about this transition from being a new deacon to becoming the new moderator. This current year is my first year serving as a deacon, and it has been filled with learning the many different ways the deacons assist and care for our church and our community. A few of these ways include hospitality, benevolence, the James ministry, and serving at memorial services. The details for understanding these jobs range from handling the simplest of tasks, such as putting out tablecloths and flowers for hospitality on Sundays, to the broader scope of wisely using available funds to help those in need. Although I still feel like I have a lot more to learn in my role as a deacon, and I also feel pretty new as a member of our church, I will begin my new role as moderator next year. I can say that taking on this new role fills me with joy in knowing that I can continue to serve our church while working alongside an incredible group of people. I have been encouraged and humbled learning and understanding how much the pastors, deacons, elders, and staff care about our church. I am also feeling a bit anxious about this transition. Just as I was starting to become comfortable in my role as a deacon, I will now be stepping out of that place of comfort and moving into this new role, which feels very unfamiliar to me. In this new beginning, I am deeply comforted in knowing I am surrounded by a supportive and caring community and that God is leading the way. I am thankful I can put my trust in Him to help guide me. And now a reading from God's Word will be from the book of John. I will be reading John chapter 1 verse 1 and John chapter 1 verses 14 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning Him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me. He was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning to each of you, and uh, thank you, Ellen, and also deacons for all of your great service. You'll hear more about that later as we um, elect deacons next week. I'm Bart Garrett, the lead pastor here. If you're new with us, I want to just especially welcome you, and um, I'm glad Brian led us uh, so carefully through confession today because I uh, missed the wordle this morning and broke a 75-day streak, and um, I needed to confess that before God, so thank you, and before all of you. And I won't give it away if you're a Wordle player, but it was a really hard word. Um, so when I was in uh, college, I, uh, we had to take, we had a foreign language requirement, and I will confess, I'm not that great at language acquisition. I sort of muddled through uh, three years of Latin in, or, or, uh, in high school, and um, so I wanted to take the Latin placement test, and uh, there were 50 vocabulary words and 50 sentence translations. And so I, I did okay with the vocabulary, but like any 18-year-old who had struggled through Latin, when I got to the translations, I just made a half of a Christmas tree on my multiple choice uh, exam, and I placed in the third level Latin. 
Um, and the problem with that was you don't get credit for level one and level two if you place into level three. So I did what any 18-year-old guy who struggles with Latin would do. I took Japanese instead. So I show up in Japanese class and the professor is speaking Japanese and everyone is talking in Japanese and she asks people questions and they respond in Japanese and she asks me who I am and I'm like, I don't speak Japanese and she gets all mad at me and everyone's sitting there and says, oh, this is third level Japanese. So I signed up for the wrong class. I did what any 18-year-old who struggled with Latin would do. I was disoriented and confused. So I got up and I walked out and I took four years of Greek and became a minister. <laughs> So there you are. Um, but I, I share that because uh, we do have people in our church that are exploring faith. Maybe you're new to church or back after a long time being away, and it's very disorienting. It's very confusing. And I would just say stick with it. It takes six or seven weeks at least to at least get some of the acquisition here. But I'm also telling that story because we've been in this series coming out of the pandemic and we've been meeting with many of you who have said, I feel confused, I feel disoriented, I'm not even sure who I am or what I'm doing or how to do it. So we've been taking those questions back to the beginning, to some first principles, looking at Genesis 1 through 3, which is really first and foremost all about relationships. So we talked about our relationship with the cosmos, how we show up in the world, our relationship with God, our relationship with each other. We talked about our relationship with evil and how we contend for good in a broken world. And then we turned our attention to our relationship with rest. And we talked about Sabbath. And then we talked about our relationship to work and the thorns and thistles that get intermingled with the joy and the satisfaction. And then we turned over a couple weeks ago to John 1, which is connected to Genesis 1, uh, because it also starts Bereshit in the beginning. And we talked about that foundational relationship with Trinity. And then we moved to our relationship between creation and new creation. And then Mary did a great job last week talking about the relationship between the world and the church. And this is the last in the series today where I am talking about the relationship between grace and truth. My caveat here would be it's a little imprecise how grace and truth relate to one another. And actually the Bible is a little bit imprecise with how grace and truth uh, relate to one another. An analogy here I would say is a great marriage. If you look at a great marriage, you may say something like, I can't really put my finger on it, but they simply belong together. <laughs> They're like peanut butter and jelly or or bread and butter, or gin and tonic, I'm not sure, but they belong together. And, and that's what this relationship with grace and truth looks like. But before we get into it, I feel like I gotta do a little um, cultural uh, ground clearing, if you will. So you gotta just bear with me on some really important philosophy, because I, I feel like today um, there is a dangerous imposter out there when it comes to truth, and there is a false accusation out there when it comes to truth. So I want to just unpack both of them for a moment. Firstly, this dangerous imposter. Um, Pilate, when he was questioning Jesus, Jesus questioned him, and Pilate said, what is truth? And that was a question that would have echoed back into a lot of philosophy before Pilate and reverberated into a lot of future philosophy after Pilate. And the problem is, uh, and let me just say, a, an armchair hobby for me is I love reading on this question. So a 20-minute sermon will not do justice to this. I'm happy to talk with you more about truth. Uh, come up and find me. We'll get coffee. But there's a dominant motif when it comes to truth today, and it's this one. 
There is no such thing as absolute, capital T, truth. And what happens if we believe there is no such thing as absolute, capital T, truth, is we either forge a dangerous imposter, as I said, or we level a false accusation. And so truth from within, truth from inside of you, this truth is confused as freedom. That's the, the dangerous imposter. But, freedom that, uh, but truth that comes at you from the outside, this truth is accused of being nothing but power. So that's the false accusation. So I want to look at each for just a moment. Truth from the inside that gets confused for freedom. We all have heard maybe and said things like, be true to your truth. Speak your truth. It's my truth. Live your truth. Well, if it's true for you, or you do you, be free. So Elsa, the sister in Frozen, the song Let It Go, what does she sing? It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Unless we think I'm picking on Disney, and I am picking on Disney, but not just Disney. Let me also pick on the United States Supreme Court, 1992. Anthony Kennedy wrote, At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the mystery of human life. See, this is truth as freedom. It's a false imposter, a dangerous imposter. But there's also an accusation leveled against truth when it comes from the outside, and it's that all it is is power. So someone's speaking truth to you, and you say all truth claims all the time are all power plays. Anyone who says they have the absolute capital T truth is doing so as a power play, what Nietzsche would call a will to power. They're abusing their power, they're harming others, they're undermining freedom. So here is the dangerous imposter of truth, freedom, the false accusation about truth. It's always about power, so it's masquerading as one or the other. But these two versions don't get along very well, do they? Freedom and power. They don't mix well. So remember uh, when we were doing social media and we were so concerned that it was getting too impersonal and too dislocated, so we got off of Facebook and Instagram and we got onto next door because we really wanted to be good neighbors and friendly with one another, with the locals. And so I just knew, I do this experiment, if I just scroll down next door and I just plop my finger on any one post, I would find this dynamic relationship between freedom and truth, and lo and behold, or freedom and power, and lo and behold, that's what I did two days ago, and this is where my finger landed. Thanks to the neighbor who left the unsigned note informing us those stretchy Halloween spider webs are bad for wildlife, we were unaware However, by tearing off the web and throwing it on the ground with your unsigned note, you revealed your self-righteous entitlement more than your concern for wildlife. Another Karen strikes again. See, I'm free in my truth. You're abusing me with your power. In despair, a lot of us end up just dismissing truth altogether, don't we? It's just too complicated. But C.S. Lewis wrote in The Abolition of Man, which I think is maybe his, his best book, he, he says, you cannot go on explaining away forever. You'll find you've explained explanation itself away. 
It's good the window should be transparent because the street or garden beyond it is opaque. How if you saw through the garden too? It is no use trying to see through first principles. If you see through everything, then everything is transparent. But a wholly transparent world is an invisible world. To see through all things is the same as not to see. In other words, maybe there is truth. And there's just this uh, masquerading freedom and power that are just facsimiles. So historic and global Christianity says that there is such a thing as an absolute capital T truth and individuals and cultures would do well to submit to it. And I know some of you are already thinking, but whoa, 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 wait a second. That's just another form of truth from the outside. Just another power play to take all my freedom away. Christianity is nothing more than a straitjacket or a chastity belt or a too early curfew. Let me gently challenge this assumption in two ways. One, for all of us, experientially, dare I say morally, you know that there is truth out there somewhere. For example, if you live your life only to have money, to make money, to spend money, then your health will shrivel. Your relationships will shrivel. Even your soul will shrivel. You'll know experientially that you're out of accord with the truth of how human beings are designed to live generously. Second, Christianity teaches that truth does come from the outside, but not as a will to power, as a gracious, graceful person. So here's the interplay and interaction between those two things for a moment. Your decisions about money, or or whatever they may be, performance, or popularity, or acceptance, or status, or uh, whatever, they're made freely, right? And you assumed with the outcomes would come more and more freedom, right? But it isn't true. It's a lie. And so to be rescued from that lie, the best way, the best resource, I would contend, or otherwise I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing, the best resource is through Jesus. Not a program, but a person. Jesus, the embodiment of truth, or truth embodied, or somehow both. And let me just say, if you ask around stories in our congregation, one of the things I've loved about being the pastor of this church, when you plant a church, everyone's in their 20s, and they haven't really lived into their 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s and so on, and you don't get to hear all of these dynamic stories of how Jesus has truly set people free from all the lies that they were telling themselves. St. Augustine, the the 4th century theologian, church father, North African, he says, God became human. This is John 1.14. God became human so we could become human again. So I mentioned there's this imprecise relationship between grace and truth. It's like peanut butter and jelly, though. We just kind of know it goes together. I, I would say it this way. Truth is who Jesus is, And grace is what Jesus gives. So Jesus is truth, and he offers grace. Now, I've been necessarily philosophical for the first half of the sermon because I think it's so important to speak to these false notions of freedom and power, but I want to get eminently practical for just a second. 
Here's an application. Make it your mission, or, or if that's too big for you, make it your ambition for the next 30 days. This is a challenge for you to do two things. One, receive the grace and truth of Christ. Two, embody the grace and truth of Christ. Receive it and embody it. Now, as I say that, you got to know uh, you have a temperament. Most of us in this room are grace people or we are truth people. We lean in one of those two directions. So in, wood, in woodworking, one of the first lessons you learn is how easy it is to cut with the grain as opposed to cutting opposite the grain. So you have to really sharpen your saw to go against the grain. Otherwise, you're going to splinter or buckle the wood. So my suggestion is to receive more of God, who is full of grace and truth, and to better embody God, to become a person of grace and truth, you're going to have to do some work against the grain. And so I'll mention that under these two headings. Receive the grace and truth of Christ. Embody the grace and truth of Christ. Receive it, firstly. Uh, Dale Bruner, who is my favorite commentator in the world, on John 1, 14 through 18, this is what he writes. He says, With the word grace, one thinks of the wide horizontal beam of the cross and of the wide, outstretched, world-embracing arms of the all-merciful, all-compassionate God, the major longing of the human heart. And then with the word of truth, one thinks of the vertical beam of the cross going down deep and up high to suggest the power of straight, real, honest truth, the major longing of the human mind. So we could spend 30 days contemplating that quote, yet I want to press in for a second to John's elaboration in this text because uh, it's a beautiful prompt for us as we consider our temperament. Am I a grace person or am I a truth person? So John writes after John 1.14 that Jesus comes in fullness and body and grace and truth. John says in verse 16 and 17, out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace in place of grace already given. What does that mean? Well, you actually need verse 17 to understand verse 16. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now think about this for just a second. If you are a truth person, if you sort of bear that truth temperament first, so you say things like, I got to buck up, I got to do the right thing, I got to keep the law, I got to walk the straight and narrow, then you must learn to see the law of God as a grace. In other words, it should be noted that the law of God always sprung from grace. I'll use the quintessential example, the Ten Commandments. Do you remember how they start? They don't begin conditionally. They don't start with, if you keep following the commandments, then I will be your God. On the contrary, listen to this rescue statement of grace. I am the Lord your God who delivered you from bondage. So if you live like, if I do this, then God will do that, you're signing yourself up for frustration, for disappointment, maybe even anger. Because the law works this way. God did this so that I can now do that. Now for those with the grace-lean temperament, how might you receive the grace and truth of Christ? So maybe you're one of those that's inclined to say, it's all good. 
God knows I'm trying my best. Truth, law, faithfulness, obedience, that's so first century. See, today, God and I, we've got this deal going. I do my thing, and God kind of looks the other way. Actually, Paul wrote about that when he wrote to the church in Rome. He said, well, should I keep on sinning so that grace would abound all the more? Absolutely not, by no means. I told you I wasn't good in Latin, but I do know a couple phrases. St. Augustine again, homo incurvatus in se. Human beings, you and me, are turned inward upon ourselves. That's what sin actually is, turning in upon ourselves and turning away from God. But what you need to understand is that sin is not just breaking God's law, right and wrong, but it's also breaking God's scale, taking a big God and making God small, creating a miniature version of God. God is your college buddy or God is your homeboy. Not a big, full of truth sort of a God that Jeremiah said would cause grown men to stagger in their standing, right? But see, sin, turning away from God, is not just breaking God's law, right and wrong, not just breaking God's scale, making a big God small, but it's also breaking God's heart. And you were designed to be knitted into the heart of God in relationship. So if you're a grace-first, truth-maybe sort of a person, you're going to miss out on that relationship. In fact, the Greek construction in, in verse 17, I wish it could be translated this way for you. For the law was given through Moses, but the grace and the truth came through Jesus Christ. I already confessed, I'm not good in Latin. i got to throw one more line out there. Moses non sua es lex, Christ sua es gratia et veritas. Moses himself is not the law. Christ himself is grace and truth. So if you assume truth is just a concept that you fudge on, and grace is just a little pat on the head as God turns the other way, then you miss Jesus the one who is truth and offers grace. So secondly, and finally, how might you embody the grace and truth of Christ? How do you receive the grace and truth of Christ? Well, you recognize Jesus is the truth offering you grace, and those two somehow belong beautifully together. How do you embody those two? And again, temperamentally, ask the question first, what camp am I in? See, truth people and grace people really need to hear this conclusion in a certain way. you got to spend time working across the grain, right? Sharpening your saw. So Jesus was born a lion and a lamb. Mr. Beaver would say of Aslan, is he safe? No, of course he's not safe. But he's good. And over the years, as I've, I've walked with people, people in my life who like really seem close to Jesus, I kind of have for them this like reverence and awe coupled with this capacity to be really comfortable and free with who I am when I'm with them. You should strive to be more like that, to be more like Jesus. So, so how do you do that? Do you become a transient carpenter wearing a tunic and sandals, walking around telling stories about plants and animals? No, let me turn the question around. How would Jesus show up as me in the life that I'm inhabiting right now? Or more cleanly and clearly, who would Jesus be 
if he were me. As a friend, a son, a daughter, a father, a mother, a spouse, a neighbor. Do people feel reverent and comfortable when they're with you? When I'm with her, I want to be. Is that what people are aspiring to? So what would it look like for the next 30 days? Here's the challenge. To receive Jesus full of grace and truth and to embody that grace and truth, showing up how you show up in the world around you. Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And anyone who Jesus sets free is free indeed. Would you pray with me? God, what a simple, basic message that completely turned the world upside down. Jesus, would we consider that absolute capital T truth is you, the embodiment, the essence, the one who ordered and shaped the cosmos and who recreates and gives new life to those of us who've turned away. As we meet you at this table, uh, would you be tender and kind? Would you be bold and courageous? Would you um, allow us to meet the one who embodies truth and offers grace? It's in your name we pray. Amen.